Gather round, children. I'm going to tell you the story of the Sourpuss. Every cherub down in Lovetown liked Valentine's a lot. But the Sourpuss, who lived just north of Lovetown, did not. The Sourpuss hated Valentine's the whole sappy season. Now please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be because the days misunderstood. It could be perhaps that his heart's made of wood. But I think that the thing that makes his blood cook is the way that the cherubs show off on Facebook. Look at these flowers, this candy, these jewels. He stood there on Valentine's, hating these fools. Staring down from his igloo with a sourpuss frown at the warm lighted windows below in their town. For he knew every cherub in Lovetown down there was busy now on the internet, blowing hot air. Look what he bought me, he snarled with a sneer. Tomorrow is Valentine's. It's practically here. Then he growled with his sourpuss hands in a fist. I must find some way to stop this. I'm... He's what, Grandpappy? He's, uh, he's annoyed. He's just annoyed. That doesn't rhyme, Grandpappy. Episode 6, The Heart of the Matter What has become a hallmark holiday full of extravagant gifts and one-upmanship started off as an array of things not so romantic and sweet. I know what you're thinking, and no, I'm not the sourpuss. Not exactly. But much like the Grinch, I can certainly relate sometimes. Let's take a look back at how beheadings and paganism led to heart-shaped chocolates and hot tubs. Although much of the following can't be confirmed, it is widely regarded as truth by many historians who are both wiser and sport a fuller beard than my own. Our story begins around the year 270 AD with a Roman emperor named Marcus Aurelius Claudius Gothicus. Awesome name for a short-lived emperor who was kind of a jerk. He was known as Claudius the Cruel by many, and on February 14th of that year, he lived up to his name. It seems our friend Mac G, that's what I'm going to call him, that's his initials, but it sounds cool, like a gangster rap name. I like it. Mac G was having a hard time recruiting troops for his army. Why? Because guys were falling in love and getting married. Mac G didn't have time for that, and decided that single men made much better troops than guys with a wife at home. So he made marriage illegal. Well... In walks St. Valentine, who thinks that Mac G's new law is dumb. He believes in the power of love and defies his decree. He performs marriages in secret for young couples all around town until, one day, Claudius the Cruel catches wind of these secret ceremonies. Claudius had him arrested and brought before the prefect of Rome. That guy found him guilty had him beaten within inches of his life by men with clubs, and then brought to the guillotine, where he was beheaded. Mmm, how romantic. Sweetums, pour me another glass of boxed wine, please. Now again, details and stories differ a little here and there. The Catholic Church has records of at least three different St. Valentines, all martyrs who died in the name of love. 
Another tale involving our now headless friend is that he was sent to prison for helping Christians escape Roman rule. While in prison, Valentine falls in love with his jailer's daughter. Her name is Julia, and she's blind, until her and Valentine pray together and she regains her sight. In his last letter to her before he's executed, he signs it at the bottom, from your Valentine, an expression we still use today. Whatever happened to Marcus Aurelius Claudius Gothicus? Well, he succumbed to pestilence. And what is pestilence? I wasn't sure. Merriam-Webster says that it's a contagious or infectious epidemic disease. It's especially devastating, like the bubonic plague, or in Mac G's case, the plague of Cyprian. Mmm, all of this plague talk is making me want to cuddle. Okay, so we have a large number of people who believe that Valentine's Day, being celebrated on February 14th, is in honor of St. Valentine's death or burial. Then we also have some who believe that Valentine's Day spawned from a whole different set of circumstances entirely. Sort of a, hey, look over here. It's a nice, pleasant Valentine's feast. No, no, no. Don't look over there at the pagan ritual. Nothing to see there at all. So there's an ancient pagan festival that was held in Rome on the 15th of February each year. No one knows exactly when this Lupercalia started, but some people trace it back to 6th century BC in its origins. It seems that an ancient king ordered his nephews, Romulus and Remus, to be tossed into a river. Now, Romulus and Remus would be credited with creating Rome, so don't panic. They'll be okay. The king's sister, who is the boy's mother, needed to be punished, and this was how he wanted to carry out the punishment. Apparently, the servant charged with hucking the boys into the river felt kind of bad and instead placed them inside a basket, said Bon Voyage, and gently placed them into the river. The river god gently escorted them down the river until the basket got caught up on a fig tree. That's when a she-wolf picked up the basket, brought it back to her den, and took care of the boys for a while. The boys were later adopted by humans, went on to kill their uncle, the evil king, found the den of their she-wolf nanny, named it Lupercal, and then messed around and built Rome. Not all in one day, of course. The festival of Lupercalia was created to honor the she-wolf as well as the Roman fertility god, Lupercus. Here's where it gets weird. Er. There's a tiny human warning here. While I keep the verbiage clean, some of the ideas here are a little bit adult. So listen at your own discretion. To kick off the festival, a group of Roman priests, known as the Luperci, would gather at the den slash cave of the she-wolf nanny and perform a couple of simple ritualistic sacrifices. Nothing big. A goat for fertility and a dog for purification. Basic sacrifices. The hide of the goat would be cut into strips and dipped in blood and then... It was time to party. The Luperci would head into town and use these strips to kind of gently slap the ladies and also various crops to, you know, promote fertility. The women looked forward to it, seeing it as a good omen. The crops, not so much. They still have various pending lawsuits. After the goat hide slapathon, everyone would head back into the town square and ladies would put their name into a big urn. All of the city's bachelors would then draw a name hang out with that gal for the rest of the year, and in most cases, marry them. ABC, if you're listening and this isn't the theme of next season's Bachelorette, you're missing the boat. Please, include all of it. Eventually, Christians thought this seemed kind of funny and put an end to the festival as it had been known, placing all of their ad revenue into promoting a more peaceful Valentine's Day on the 14th. The events were sort of combined, made less kooky, and focused more on the falling in love aspect than the pagan portion. 
So as I asked earlier, how did we get here from there? How did crop slapping become a $1,000 tennis bracelet? A man quite literally lost his head so that you can watch You've Got Mail and eat chocolate-covered fruits without guilt one day of the year. In the Middle Ages, people in England and France believed that February 14th marked the beginning of mating season for birds everywhere. This added to the idea of the middle of February being a romantic time. In 1375, poet Geoffrey Chaucer penned the first piece of literature that labeled St. Valentine's Day as a romantic day of celebration. <clears throat> and in a clearing on a hill of flowers was set this noble goddess nature of branches when her halls and her bowers wrought according to her art and measure. Nor was there any foul she does engender that was not seen there in her presence to hear her judgment and give audience. For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every fowl comes there his mate to take, of every species that men know, I say, and then so huge a crowd did they make. The earth and sea and tree and every lake was so full that there was scarcely space for me to stand. So full was all the place. Thank you. Then, of course, old Bill Shakespeare steps on the scene and takes romance up a notch, even mentioning Valentine's Day in Hamlet when Ophelia says, Pray you, let's have no words of this, but when they ask you what it means, say you this, tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morning be time, and I, a maid at your window to be your valentine. Then up he rose and donned his clothes and duped the chamber door, let in the maid, that outer maid, never departed more. I don't have a clue what any of that means, but if that's not romance, I'm not sure what is. All right, so that takes us through around 1600. We've had Romans and beheadings and pagans with goat hide slapping, and then a couple of the greatest writers in the history of words and paper. So is that how we got to chocolate handcuffs and diamond earrings? I don't think so. But let's keep going. Fast forward to the Industrial Revolution and subsequent Victorian era, a time when everything was all batty fang and giggle mug, and Valentine's Day is becoming more and more celebrated throughout the New World. In America, a woman named Esther Howland of Massachusetts made some of the first Valentine's cards back in 1849. It wasn't long after that Hallmark entered the Valentine's game around 1913 and quickly cornered the market. Somewhere in that time period, vinegar Valentines also became hugely popular. If you're unfamiliar with that term, imagine everything sweet that is said inside a Hallmark card, then erase all of that mushy nonsense and tell someone how you really feel about them, that you hate them. Boom! Vinegar Valentines. Here's some examples of what these cards would say. To my Valentine, tis a lemon that I hand you and bid you now skidoo. Because I love another, there is no chance for you. Another, my favorite, is entitled, You Are a Nerve Destroyer. It reads, when a pig's getting slaughtered, the noise that it makes is sweeter by far than your trills and your shakes, and the howling of cats in the backyard at night, compared with your singings, a dream of delight. Your squalls and your bawls are such torture to hear, a man almost wishes he had not an ear. If someone would choke you, and thus end their pain, hearty thanks from your poor distressed neighbors he'd gain. Yikes! 
I'll post a couple of these endearing rhymes on my website, curator135.com. The worst, or perhaps the best part of Vinegar Valentines is that since they could be mailed anonymously, most senders of Vinegar Valentines wouldn't get caught, like internet trolls and keyboard warriors. There was anonymity in sending these. The worst, worst part was that senders wouldn't even pay to have them sent. The recipient was the one that would have to fork over a penny just to read them. Costing only one cent, some people classify these as penny dreadfuls. They are not included in that, but penny dreadfuls will definitely be discussed in a future episode. People complained and wrote letters to the companies, demanding they stopped making them. Eventually, the public lost interest and the nasty valentines faded away. It would be fun to make them popular again. As my investigation into the commercialism of Valentine's Day continued, I stumbled upon a pretty darn cool story that I had never heard of before. There's a city around 90 miles northeast of London within England's Norfolk County called Norwich. Perhaps it is here that the idea of gift-giving became popular on Valentine's Day. There are bits and pieces scattered around the web involving stories of a Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, Tooth Fairy type character named Jack Valentine. All of these stories seem centralized to the Norfolk County area, so I stopped by the city of Norwich's tourism website. Jack Valentine is real. I believe. According to the website, nobody knows where he comes from. Nobody has ever seen him. Nobody has any idea quite how old he is or why he's never ventured out of Norfolk. What the people of Norwich do know is that for the last 200 years on Valentine's Eve, Mr. Jack Valentine, under the cover of darkness, visits your home. Apparently he works alone, without the help of elves or any other kind of employee. You may hear a knock on your door, but by the time you open the door, he's gone, having left small gifts on the doorstep. The website claims that if you answer his knock at the door quickly enough, you might spot him, although nobody's managed that quite yet. Unlike Father Christmas, Jack Valentine is a little unpredictable as far as what he may leave for you. Sure, there's a chance he might leave you something nice like a vase or a jewelry box, but for no apparent reason... He might also just dump some coal on your porch or scribble nonsense on a note. It's possible that he might even just knock and run away. Or if he's feeling extra sassy, he might attach a string to a real nice gift and then yank the present away when you go to grab it. In that sense, he seems much more leprechaun than Santa. Another thing that's a little different about our friend Jack is that as of now, he's never really ventured much outside of Norwich. According to the Visit Norwich website, the tradition of gift giving on Valentine's Eve has been around for years, too, and was big business in Norwich in the 19th and early 20th century. Accounts at the time talk about thousands of pounds being spent on the occasion, and shops here even took on extra staff to help cope with the demand. It's like a Black Friday sale on Valentine's Eve. Aha! So it's Jack Valentine's fault that I have to scroll through Facebook and feel envious of the new puppy or diamond-encrusted peanut butter cup your husband or wife bought you. Maybe. But maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't take umbrage with how anyone chooses to celebrate their holidays. It is that umbrage, however, that made me drop the episode I had been working on to do an episode focusing on a holiday that just happened. Social media feeds were awash in look-what-he-bought-me posts. And I got to thinking about how that makes less fortunate people feel about their own situations. Maybe a friend of yours has a spouse who loves them endlessly, but money is tight. Maybe a distant cousin just went through a breakup and is alone on Valentine's Day. But there you are, all over Facebook with your new diamond pendant and an allergy-inducing amount of roses. I don't begrudge anyone being spoiled or relishing in their love. It just got me thinking. How did people celebrate the holiday before? Why is it even a holiday? And how did we get here? The answer is simply, companies found a way 
even in the late 1800s and early 1900s, to capitalize on an idea and make you feel the need to spend as much money as possible to prove your love and loyalty. That may be the sourpuss in me, with his wooden heart and clenched fists. I don't know. What I do know is that people spend nearly $20 billion annually on a holiday that likely began by a guy fighting for what he believed in and losing his head for it. Somehow, in recent years, the meaning behind a gift lost out to how much you spent on it. Maybe that's why Jack Valentine sometimes leaves expensive things and sometimes leaves silly scribbling on paper for young and old alike. I'm going to look into flying Jack Valentine over to the States. I think we could use him. I'm also going to look into reviving the Vinegar Valentines. I know some people who need them. On behalf of the Sourpuss, Jack Valentine, and all the goats we've lost in the name of love, thank you for listening. Please follow me on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to the podcast on any of the major podcast apps. Until next time, be good to one another, and be creative. The world needs you.